And so we come this morning to Matthew chapter 23, if you want to turn there in your Bibles with me. But I chose some of the hymns this morning in particular to direct you to the the grace of God in Christ, the reality that we can know that we are saved from judgment through faith in Christ. I, I wanted to fill your heart and your mind with these wonderful gospel realities because the passage we're in this morning continues to be difficult. We're at a section, a portion of the Gospel of Matthew. We are at the point in our Lord's ministry when when he is confronting the scribes and the Pharisees who are the religious leaders of Israel. After three years of ministry, Jesus, in spite of all of the testimony and the miracles, has been rejected by these evil leaders. And the population as a whole has Acquiesce, they have gone along. And so the Lord, who is the king of Jerusalem, the king of Israel, is in this portion of the gospel here pronouncing judgment. And so this morning our passage is largely to do with judgment. And it is critical for us to hear all of God's word. But we must hear of the judgment of God against sin, else we lose the power of the cross. It makes no sense. We lose the joy of our salvation when we lose sight of the misery of judgment. And so I remind you again as we go forward that there is good news for sinners. That is why Jesus came, is to save his people from their sins. But we're reminded this morning just what it is, and here's the key, that Jesus means by save, as to what we are saved from. So let's begin by reading the word of our Lord in Matthew chapter 23. And we'll begin this morning in verse 29, though we'll really be looking at verse 34 and following. And I'm going to read through chapter 24, verse 2, beginning in Matthew 23, verse 29. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your guilt, of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not, and you were unwilling. Behold, 
your houses being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Amen. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we pause briefly to reflect on what we have just read. And we understand by Jesus' language that these are heavy words. And so we want to ask, Father of mercies, that you would grant us ears to hear and eyes to see. Soften our hearts. Help us to see something of the nature of sin and judgment. And by your grace, bring us again afresh to see the grace and the glory of your salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask. Amen. The message the world needs right now is the message of judgment. I know that sounds in this generation of Christianity as counter to what we might think for a generation or more now. The mantra is the world knows needs to know about the love of God, the love of God, the love of God, the love of Christ. And God is love. That is his, who he is. That is his intrinsic nature. He is love. The Bible does not say that God's wrath is, is a reflection of his eternal character. Rather, his wrath is his holy response to all that is contrary to who he is in his love. But the world cannot possibly understand the love of God unless it understands what God has said in his word about his present and particularly his coming judgment. But we don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear about judgment. We, we are quick to call preachers who talk about the judgment of God hellfire and brimstone preachers. We chuckle about it. It's nothing to laugh at. We actually don't have many these days. Who wants to get up and talk about the judgment of God? I don't. I confess. I, I come to this passage and last week I felt this way. I feel this week this, this way with a certain heaviness. I, I don't, I love preaching, but, but this isn't pleasant. I don't, I don't enjoy naturally these portions of scripture that have to do with the judgment of God. It's heavy. It's hard. It's particularly if you're a preacher, you, you know that you yourself are a sinner. And so it, it just, it's a certain kind of rawness in preaching about judgment. When you know, naturally speaking, you are yourself worthy of it. But God and Christ and his apostles and the prophets before them came to this world speaking the truth, the truth from God, 
And the truth from God is that you must be made right with God, else you will experience his wrath. You will experience the judgment for your sins. And in our passage this morning, we learn frighteningly, not only in a sense your sins, but the sins of those you have identified with in your rebellion against God. So it's a heavy text. I do want to tell you up front that there is a note of glorious hope. Of course, it's fixed on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But one of my favorite prophets, who Jesus references, Zechariah, who was apparently murdered. We don't have the record of that in the Bible other than what Jesus says here. But Zechariah spoke of a great and glorious time in the future when when the nation of Israel, who here and throughout history has largely rejected God, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, God says in the last days that finally, after experiencing the judgment of God, that there will be a small remnant who God says in that day he will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. There's a day of great repentance, of great salvation for the remnant of the nation of Israel in the last days. There is hope, and there is salvation, and there is salvation in none other than Jesus Christ. And that hope and that salvation is strong. One of the things in the the things, one of the assurances I have in preaching some of these harder passages My heart is always burdened for the true little lambs of Jesus among us who might be frightened by these things and discouraged. And and one of the comforts I have is that, that the security there is in Christ, the salvation that is in Christ means that you, if you're truly born again, that you can sit under the preaching and the teaching of the truth of the coming judgment of God and in your safe. You will feel the heat maybe of the fire Maybe you'll be singed a little bit. You'll be warned. You'll be corrected. But you're all right. But we want to make sure this morning that every one of us is in Christ because otherwise we are not all right. And we need in this generation of Christians to stop lying to our neighbors, which is what we, the church, have been doing. We have been lying to them and saying to them, only God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That is not the whole truth. He loved you so much that he sent his son. Yes, he loves the world. And the proof is his son. But the Bible equally tells us that that love of God is in the view of the coming wrath. In other words, in love, God offers a sacrifice to bear the penalty for our sins. And if we do not repent and trust in Jesus Christ, we will experience the wrath and the judgment of God in full measure and for eternity in a place that Jesus calls hell. We need to tell the truth. Jesus was always a truth teller. And think of it here, our Lord, the, gross, most, the most gracious man who's ever walked the earth, 
the man who loves his people. He is the son of David. He is the king of Israel. He is the Messiah. He wants nothing more than, as he says, to gather them like his children, the way a hen gathers his chicks. That's the inclination of his heart. That is the inclination of God. But God's love is a holy love. There is no love of God that is not holy. And God is not set over and against himself as though he is a divided person. No, as he said to Israel, behold, the Lord our God is one. Meaning he is singular, there's no one like him, but meaning that he is not divided. His attributes he holds in perfect unity in the fullness of who he is. So Jesus is gentle and meek and mild. And yet here we find him in holy zeal, standing up and pronouncing judgment, firstly upon the leaders of Israel, especially the scribes and the Pharisees. For they were most commonly the Bible teachers and the pastors of the day. They were, the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones that the general people looked to to trust And it is as an aside, a reminder that in our generation, that it is those who lead and teach and pastor who will give a higher account. The scribes and Pharisees receive the fullest measure of Jesus's woes. Seven of them in Matthew 28, woe to you. And if Jesus is saying woe to you, it's a bad day. And he is announcing to this to them in the temple precincts in the course of the temple think of it the courage of the Lord Jesus which testifies to who he is he's not intimidated he's not nervous he's not anxious he's not qualifying his words with a lot of different exceptions he's standing up and telling and pronouncing the truth he is the king but not only are the scribes and Pharisees guilty of rejecting him they are the ones who in their study of the scriptures of all people should have been pointing the general population and verifying what the scriptures had said, what the prophets had said about Jesus, the Messiah. They should have confirmed this Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the Messiah, the promised savior of Israel. But they misled the people and the people willingly followed The people are not as culpable, they are not as responsible, but at the end of the day, they too reject Jesus, except for a few exceptions. And so Jesus' judgment here in the passage we've read this morning starts with the scribes and the Pharisees, but it extends beyond them to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and to the people as a whole. Israel is rejecting her king. And in this rejection, God judges them, not with a final judgment so that there is no hope. As I said, there is a day when God will renew a remnant of Israel. But this is a tragic moment when they will no longer see their king again until that future day when in Psalm 118, they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this time, it will not be like the, the day that Jesus, his triumphal entry in which they said it, and then a few days later cried, crucify. 
In the coming day, they will cry out, blessed is he, blessed are you, Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord, and Jesus will be king over all the earth. But this morning, we must consider, in the time that we have left, the nature of Israel's judgment, the nature of Israel's judgment. And Israel was unique in, is unique in redemptive history. Israel, the nation, was uniquely the the stewards of the promises of God, the word of God, the gospel of God. And they failed in that stewardship largely, and they rejected their king. God is not done with them. But Paul says in Romans that a partial hardening has occurred in Israel until those latter days. And so their judgment was severe. They were unique, they were privileged, and in their ongoing rejection of the preaching of the prophets and ultimately of Jesus, their judgment is necessarily severe. Jesus is announcing this. We know it's around A.D. 30, only 40 years later. 40 years later. How many of us in this room are 40 years or older? Only 40 years later, we know from history, from particularly one Jewish historian named Josephus and Secular historians, this is just common knowledge, that in 70 AD, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Roman army and absolutely slaughtered. Hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews throughout the whole land lost their lives in the wrath of the Roman Empire, which was a fulfillment of Jesus' words in verse 2 that the city would be utterly destroyed, that it would be left decimated, looking somewhat like the images we've seen in Fort Myers. This city, built of massive stones by King Herod the Great, would be reduced to dust. And to this day, you have to dig archaeological digs, and you cannot find, with rare exception, one whole piece of stone left from that judgment in 70 AD. So let's look together at the nature of this judgment, trusting that God has lessons for us. First of all, I want you to notice this morning that Israel's judgment, that this judgment of God is an intentional judgment, an intentional judgment. Jesus says, behold, verse 34, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. So after Jesus dies, after Jesus rises from the dead, after Jesus ascends to heaven, he is going on behalf of the Father to send Israel more prophets and wise men. And we know from the book of Acts, these are essentially the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists like Stephen and Philip, who God sent, Jesus sent, to announce the gospel. And we know in the book of Acts, lo and behold, that they were killed, they were crucified, some of them. They were scourged in the synagogues and they were persecuted from city to city. That is the account of Acts. And we know from church history, it doesn't stop with the account of Acts, but continues on even to this day. But Israel in particular, and that generation would ultimately reject the apostles, persecute them, and the followers of Jesus Christ. 
But so Jesus, knowing full well that that would happen, I want you to notice says, he says, I am sending them. And part of the reason why Jesus is sending them is frightening. Did you pick up on it? Jesus is sending them not only to announce the good news of the gospel. Yes, that is first and foremost, we know from the book of Acts. And in Matthew 28, Jesus will say, go and make disciples. But Jesus says in verse 34, I'm going to send them, verse 35, so that upon you may fall the guilt of the righteous blood. In other words, let this sink in. Such is the wickedness of the rejection of God and Christ in that generation that Christ is actually going to send more prophets, more godly wise men to announce the kingdom who he knows will be killed, in part, he descends them so that the guilt of that generation will actually increase. It's part of their judgment. Let that sink in. That part of the judgment of God upon those Pharisees and scribes and that generation of Israelites was actually that God would increase their guilt, knowing that they would reject, but still sending the wise men and scribes. You say God wouldn't do that. I point you to verse 34 and 35. Look at the grammar. I will send you these prophets and wise men, verse 35, so that. That's a purpose statement. That's a reason. That's an intention. And therefore, I want you to see, first of all, that this judgment of God and Christ is an intentional judgment. It is not haphazard. It is not a whim. It is not an accident. It is intentional. And it is a righteous response of the good and holy and loving God to not only that generation's wickedness and rebellion, but generation after generation after generation of Israel's rejection of God. It is secondly a just judgment. It is an intentional judgment. And secondly, I want you to see it is a just judgment. As I already alluded to, God is responding, Christ is responding to the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, treatment of the men that God sent. Not only in that generation, but notice the previous generations. And that's our next point we'll look at in just a moment. But sometimes, often actually, men and women bristle against the idea of judgment and against hell. It seems over the top. It seems unreasonable. And the only reason it seems that way is because we don't know God and we don't know ourselves. We don't know God and we don't know ourselves. We've removed God from our lives largely. He is but a wisp on the fringe of our lives in this culture and in this godless generation. And so we have ideas about God, but mostly they're, they're given to us by hallmark or, or by general you know, assumption and not from a study of the scriptures. We don't know God. And because we don't know God, then we don't know ourselves. And judging ourselves in comparison with ourselves, we think we're actually not that bad. We're actually pretty good. But when you hear the truth of who God is as he's revealed in his scriptures, and the purity of who he is, and the loveliness of who he is, and the glory of who he is, the majesty of who he is, 
And you consider that the heavens are telling the glory of God. The creation is telling the glory of God. And he went to great lengths to send prophets and apostles to give us the scriptures which are telling of the glory of God. And by and large, this generation says, eh, what's next? It's vile. And rejection of God may start out seemingly innocent. It may seem like just a decision. But you reject God, you reject his ways. You reject his morals. And I hope you see right now in this generation an absolute falling apart of the house of cards, the idea that we believed as this generation to some extent that men and women are naturally pretty good. If, in fact, we're expressing shock that in our generation all that's going on, that we have this chaos and the violence in our cities, that we have children who have no idea that they shouldn't kill their parents. We have, no, we have, we have a generation of moms and dads who think it's okay to kill their children. We have men and women who are selling drugs and dying in droves. Like I said, recent statistic, 80,000 overdoses. How, does, how can that happen? And we're in shock that, that the culture is saying that little boys, no, you're not necessarily a boy. You don't know what you are. You're little girls. You don't know what you are. Where you can, you can have sexual relations with anyone or anything, and it's just your choice. It's just your way. There's nothing moral or immoral about it. And we're, some of us, if we're expressing shock, I understand it is shocking, but in a sense, it reveals that we don't understand and believe what the Bible says about us. This is the human heart apart from God. It is corrupt. It is desperately wicked, the scriptures say. And oh, are we seeing it unfold right now? It is the explanation for what we see going on is the wickedness of the human heart and and the judgment of God. But their judgment was just because of the nature of their sin. As I I began to say, sin starts out as seemingly okay, seemingly like a simple decision But it leads to the kind of moral violence and chaos and depravity that we are seeing increasingly right before our eyes. It never stays innocent. It never is innocent. But it never stays neutral and polite. Sin and rejection of all of God always leads to violence. Because sin is nothing short of hatred of God. And it will result in hatred of those made in the image of God. In the Israel's case, the manifestation of rejection, rebellion against God, especially was revealed in the way that they treated the prophets. To be a prophet in the Old Testament or an apostle in the New Testament was a death wish, by and large. Um, We know from Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, that largely those who spoke for God were martyred, slaughtered. We know from church history that this is the case, that to preach the word of God in truth, to stand up in a wicked generation and to tell them to repent and trust in Christ is a death wish. And that is how Israel largely treated her prophets. It wasn't the prophets largely didn't suffer at the hands of foreign kingdoms. They suffered at the hands of their own people. 
Their own people didn't want to know about God, didn't know, want to know the truth about themselves. This generation, described in chapter 23, Jesus is addressing these Pharisees and the scribes. They liked to think that if they were there, they wouldn't have killed Zechariah or Jeremiah, you know, the other prophets. Oh, we wouldn't have done that. But here they are, and they are opposing the very incarnate Son of God. In the book of Acts, they will knowingly, willingly oppose the apostles. So this judgment is just. It is not over the top. It is not unreasonable. In fact, God has been patient. God has been bearing with Israel and her leaders for generations. It is a just judgment. Their opposition of God is a vile and violent opposition. And time for judgment had come. Thirdly, I want you to notice it is a compounded judgment. A compounded judgment. These men would be held individually, of course, for their sins. As the Bible says, each one God will render to each one according to his deeds. But Jesus also notes that because of their wickedness and their identifying with the rebellion against God, that they would also not only give account for their own sins, but that there would be a corporate guilt that would be imposed upon them. Verse 35, that all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, these things will come upon you. Verse 36, of course, these men weren't there. Cain's the one who murdered Abel. They weren't there. They weren't alive when Zechariah was murdered. So what's going on? How is this just? This is a very important biblical principle to understand. Choose your side. Choose your side. And there's only two options. We like to think, especially as New Hampshireites, and I'm born here, so I can say this. We're independent. I'm, I don't like to choose sides. You don't have a choice. You didn't choose to give birth to yourself into this world. You were born into this world. You are created. You are not the creator. You are born into a certain reality, and in this reality, there is light and there is darkness. There is the kingdom of God and Christ There is the kingdom of Christ and there is the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world. And when we do not trust in Christ and and repent and bow the knee to Christ, our life may not be as flagrantly vile and outwardly immoral as, as the worst one out there. But we are choosing sides. And we are on the wrong side And there is a reality, though we must be careful of the principle, and only only God can apply it, of corporate responsibility. We understand this in a bit, in a way that, that, that when, for example, if I'm part of a team and one or two of my team members acted in a certain way in the game, well, the whole team is penalized. There's a, there's a reality of identity. And again, that, that principle is going a little bit haywire in our culture as, as we have those who want to 
you know, people who are not guilty of, of slavery to make reparations, for example. God is the only righteous judge. And in this case, he is right in judging this current generation of Pharisees and scribes and the citizens of Jerusalem because by rejecting Jesus, they have identified with those who have rejected God and his prophets all along. Do you see it? And so they are guilty for not only their own sin, but they are taking their stand with a whole generational rejection of God, and God is going to hold them accountable for it. It's a compounded judgment. God is absolutely just. His, righteous, his judgment is righteous and true. He will render to each one according to his or her deeds. But it's a frightening reality that when we do not submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we become partners and partakers with the kingdom of darkness and do become guilty by association in the sight of God. Fourthly, it is a tragic judgment. It is a tragic judgment. The judgment of Israel is a tragic judgment. Jesus says, verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, his heart is broken. We've already learned of him weeping over Jerusalem before he came in. And now again, he just is lamenting. He loves Jerusalem. It is the city of the great king. And mark it, Jesus one day will reign from Jerusalem. And from there, he will be king over all the earth, a new Jerusalem. But he mourns over Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen. He loves them, but they're caught in their trespasses and sins. They're misled by these scoundrels, these scribes and these Pharisees. He has longed to gather them together. But, and here's the key, end of verse 37, you were unwilling. They're not victims at the end of the day. They are moral, responsible agents who have willingly rejected the salvation that God has sent. And therefore, it is a tragic judgment because they had the opportunity. They, among all the peoples on earth at that time, they actually knew how it was that you could be saved from the judgment of God. They were recipients of the mercy of God and that they rejected it. It's tragic. Fifthly, I want you to notice that it is a devastating judgment. A devastating judgment. Chapter 24, verse 2, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but Jesus says to his disciples, they're in awe of the temple, and it was an awesome structure. All historians from ancient historians recognize that it was not like a little, a little building. Massive, impressive structure. And Jesus says to his disciples, do you see these stones? I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And we know that the judgment that God rendered upon Israel through the Romans in particular in 70 AD was absolutely decimating. They never recovered from it. And in a sense, to this day, they have still not. What do we see in the history of the world except the persecution of the Jews? It's tragic and devastating. 
Because of their rejection of Christ, they have been rejected by God. And because Satan hates them as the chosen people of God, they have experienced double pain. And it is tragic. And it is devastating. Don't think lightly of the judgment of God. We, we somehow think lightly of the judgment of God these days. We somehow think somehow that it's unbecoming of God or the gospel to be afraid of judgment. If you're not afraid of the judgment of God, you're not sane. You're not sane. You're not operating in reality. It is an absolutely terrifying thing, says the Bible to fall into the hands of the living God. Terrifying. That's what men and women should be anxious about until they're reconciled with Christ. Sixth, and finally, in regard to the judgment, it is a intentional judgment, a just, compounded, tragic, devastating judgment But perhaps most sobering is that the judgment that Jesus spoke about upon the scribes and the Pharisees and Jerusalem in that generation, verse 36, and it would come to pass. The temple would be obliterated. The the population would be slaughtered and scattered. Most frightening and most sobering is that it was, sixthly, an initial judgment. Initial, not the ultimate. Horrifying as it is. And again, Jewish historian Josephus, writing on, as a Roman citizen, describing it, is, it the, the city was bathed in blood, rivers of blood, a slaughter on scale of, of like the Holocaust. Devastating. But even as horrifying as that initial, as that judgment was, it was initial. Where do I get that? Verse 33, Jesus says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? The judgment upon Jerusalem in 70 AD and upon that generation was not the final, was not the end. But for those men who continued and women who continued in rejection of Christ, it but was the first installment. And Jesus teaches about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. It's been said, so I think someone titled a book, Whatever Happened to Hell? Well, the answer is this generation may have rejected the idea. That doesn't change it. You can say there's no moon. That doesn't change it. Who do you think you are? God determines these realities. God is the judge. God is the one who has revealed that he has prepared a place for the devil and his angels and that those who are on the devil and angels team by rejecting his son will share in the like experience of the place that is called hell. And it is real And it is holy because it is the Lord's judgment. It's not Satan's hell. He's not Lord there. 
He is bound in the end. He is cast into the lake of fire. Hell is the eternal, holy expression of God's opposition to all that is against him and his son. And these men, these scribes and the Pharisees, and this generation of Israelites, and it is clear in the Bible, all, apart from Christ, will know the reality called hell. There's nothing silly about it. There's nothing funny about it. I hate, that's a strong word, Halloween in terms of jokes about Satan and about devil, about fire. There's nothing funny about it. Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, how will you escape the sentence of hell? And it's, it's what's most frightening about it is actually it's not a real question, it's a rhetorical question. It's an expression of judgment. These men who have so persistently resisted the Holy Spirit, so twisted the scriptures, so neglected the plain truth of the scriptures, so persistently rejected Christ, rejected Christ, refused to submit to him as Lord, refused to acknowledge his right over their lives, refused the kingdom They will not escape the sentence of hell. They will not escape the judgment that will come in 70 AD, and they will not escape the resurrection of the dead unto everlasting judgment. Described by Jesus and reiterated at the close of the Bible in the book of Revelation. hard but that judgment was not only for Israel Israel as I said in the beginning is a schoolmaster in a sense to the rest of the world for God's righteous dealings with Israel he is not impartial he will not treat others who reject Christ and his kingdom differently So when we sing this morning about salvation, when we think about Christ bearing in himself the penalty for our sins, when we sang this morning the power of the cross, bore the wrath, make no mistake, what we mean is the full, unmitigated, unchecked, unrestrained, righteous, holy, just wrath of God being unleashed and poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross to the utmost just measure to account for our sins. And this is why our salvation is not just a little part of our identity or our story. Our salvation is cause at first for weeping and contrition like David broken over our sins but is a cause for wonder 
and awe and amazement and gratitude and love and generosity and kindness and worship unto God who is our Savior. His salvation is a great salvation because he saves us. The very God who in his righteousness could judge us on account of our sins so loves us that he provides for us his own beloved son to bear in himself the penalty for our sins so that trusting in Jesus, we are safe. We are safe because our sins are accounted for. We escape the sentence of hell because Jesus bore hell on the cross for us and was uniquely suited to do so. There is salvation in no other than Jesus. We must flee the wrath to come. It's not too strong language that both John the Baptist and Jesus use. We flee the wrath to come by trusting in Jesus Christ, running as it were to him, And for those who do, there is wonderful hope. For Jesus says in verse 39, and I want to close with this, for I say to you, from now on, you will not see me. He says to Israel, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want to close by asking you if you have a Bible and you can find it, turning with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. As in just a moment, we will come to the Lord's table and we will remember with wonder the nature of the new covenant that God has made with those who trust in Christ. God says, I'm not going to read the whole passage in Jeremiah 31, verse 27 and 28. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man, the seed of beast, as I have watched over to pluck them up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and bring disaster. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew. God says, just as I have done this, so I will watch over them to build and plant, declares the Lord. And he will make a new covenant, verse 31, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the old covenant made at Mount Sinai. But God says, verse 33, he's going to change this remnant in the last day from the inside out. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and say each man to his brother saying, Know the Lord, no more evangelists. Required, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. And here's the wonder of wonders. For I will forgive their iniquity. You mean their rejecting of the, the gospel of Christ, murdering of the prophets? Yes, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. And here is the wonder that we who are Gentiles, who trust in the Messiah, the King of Israel, slain for sinners, partake in this new covenant to the fullness. 
so that all who trust in Jesus Christ can know that our sins are forgiven, our iniquity is forgiven, and God will not remember our sin anymore. Hallelujah. This is the good news. Let's pray. God, what a great Savior you are. Help us to recapture the preciousness and meaning of that word, Savior. And as we come now to the Lord's table, as we eat this cracker and drink this grape juice, we pray that you will humble us, that we will remember the cost of the atonement for our sins, And that most of all, those who trust in Jesus will go out of here today with joy, knowing that we have been set free from judgment and also going out of here with a mission to share the good news with those who are still under judgment. Bless us now as we come in these moments. In Christ's name, amen.